You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Poetry of Impact. On today's episode, we welcome Jenna Nichols. Jenna is the CEO of Impact Experience, an organization focused on addressing the many issues surrounding structural racism and bringing folks closer to source. In this episode, Jenna illustrates the importance of integrating data and facts with history and storytelling in addressing structural racism today. Jenna talks about the relationship between personal bias and power. She shares her visceral experiences along with some useful somatic tools that can help us connect more deeply with our bodies as we move through our work and impact. Jenna feels optimistic about the work that's taken place around tackling race issues and inequality. She sees both an increase of awareness and increase in action at the individual and organizational level that can hopefully shift our historical narrative towards healing. So drop in and enjoy this episode with Jenna Nichols. Hi, welcome, Jenna. It's so great to have you here today. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, nice. And where are you calling in from today? I am in Oakland, California. Hmm. Well, so I know a lot of people know about your work, um, including myself, and I think you're at a really interesting um, point, both in your life based on previous conversations and the kind of work you're doing. But I think what's even more interesting about you is not just the work you're doing, but how you're doing it. And um, I know in our last conversation, I was really intrigued by this concept of a through line and how you've been occupied with that, even potentially even at a young age before you even knew your work. Uh, but just as an inspirited body in the world. Can you talk a little bit about um, how your evolution has evolved around that and uh, why you find it important and and how you actually came up with this concept? Definitely. It's really wonderful to to be here and to be having this conversation today. And from a young age, the the idea of us not just being physical beings and living in a physical reality, but rather our um, of spiritual identity and how do we connect to something greater than ourselves has been something that has both resonated deeply and to your point on through line has really been a through line I think around all of the decisions that I've made and engaged in and uh, and and a big part of the work that engaged in now with impact experience in many ways is providing spaces for us to each connect more deeply to ourselves and to our own journeys and lives and ancestors and um, our, our purpose in being here in this world. And, and also then to connect more deeply to each other and to communities that have been overlooked and underestimated um, in that process. And so when I think about through line, there's sort of that personal through line, but also this kind of collective through line. A lot of our work is grounding in the historical context of structural racism and ways in which that's playing out today. So being able to draw this through line between that historical context and the present day reality uh, is also a big part of the work. How do you, how do you know when it's actually working and when it's felt versus a bromide, right? I mean, um, you hear this language a lot, or maybe you and I, because we exist in this, maybe this, um, you know, this, I would say, um, you know, spiritual development uh, ecosystem to some extent, we're intrigued by it. But even folks within it um, who are just coming in or, um, 
sometimes it comes across as a bromide, as a sort of a sort of a cliche. And I mean, how do you know it's actually working? And there's that actual somatic felt sense, like yes, um, you know, I'm moving beyond my um, incarnated body, uh, in, in essence. No, it's a really powerful question, and it's something that we think about a lot. And I think there are some more of data and scientific ways of thinking about this, and then some more um, experiential and, to your point, sort of somatic and, and felt ways of thinking about this. So on the sort of more scientific data side, and we actually do uh, pre and post surveys, pre and post interviews and engagements with each of our, our participants as part of the impact experiences to really check in around some of these questions so that there is a sense of what is that before and after in terms of how people are engaging in this work. We also have everybody makes very tangible commitments and next steps. And so there's very much a an action orientation to the time together. You know, I'm part of the Baha'i faith and there's a, a, cause a concept around in the Baha'i faith around putting one's faith into action and that we shouldn't have things that sort of start and end in words. And so that definitely, that concept is very much infused into, you know, much of our work. Um, and I think there's also this more felt sense. We engage musicians and artists as part of all of our work. And there's something, you know, I think in the Zoom world, people express that through the little emoticons that people put up in their Zoom of the hearts. And the, and in, in person, you, know, you have even more of a sense of that. But the, that sinking into um, a deeper level of frequency that I think uh, the art enables that to happen and sometimes just words and, and data uh, can sometimes get in the way even of, of the, that ability to fully, fully sink in. And what role does community play in this? You know, I mean, Joseph Campbell always talks about um, the role of the community is to essentially accept the boon of the, of the journeyer. Essentially, you know, you go on this journey and you come back with your boon and it's important for the community to be able to receive it and also to be received um, for you actually to turn over the gift of the journey. Um, share a little bit about the role of like community and actually solidifying, actually confirming people's experiences, because sometimes it can feel a bit alone and we get into this sort of this, especially when life becomes a little bit over individuated. And we live these sort of these soul in these solo sort of, you know, what I call sort of these LinkedIn personas where we're just locked into this identity that it's like, eh, um, I mean, it feels like carbs to, to some extent, like it's a little, you know, I mean, you get a little high off it for a short period of time, but, but there's something that, you know, is missing if, I mean, you just sort of like, just sort of clean the screen off a little bit. And uh, so I, I guess where, I, where I'm really intrigued by is, how we actually support each other in this faith, in this faith beyond the body or, you know, the spirited body. I love that. And it's, it's an essential part of the, the work and just the daily way of being is, is community and is that ability for us to know that we're not alone. You know, I think about the, the Desmond Tutu, you know, we talk a lot about the concepts of Ubuntu and the idea of, you know, I am because we are. And so even coming back to how we relate to like, what is our identity and to your point about, you know, our LinkedIn personas. And, and I think so much of this with uh, being under COVID is, is so much of our identities you know, have come down to our 
our virtual and uh, reality rather than um, you know our physical realities and similar because we're connecting to people in these in these virtual worlds and so you know, even more so that ability for us to to know that we're not alone and that we are holding each other in the process of of navigating the contours of of life and 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 the source of strength that can can come from that in both for for each of our work but also for for our own personal lives and, and journeys and you talk about this through line concept about uh, vacillating between historical context and circumstance uh, essentially and in your particular realm it's structural racism how do you how do you how do you go back um, and create the through line from a historical context um, and then what is the role of narration and story and uh, you know I was trained in postmodern sort of deconstruction and one of the famous uh, approaches to that or one of the key features is sort of deconstructing power uh, to some extent and you realize that a lot of what you see in the past or what you think is in the past is merely a, a function of framing and obviously there's a lot of sayings that go on you know i mean those that uh, have the pen sort of win win that uh, i mean those in power sort of win that framing so there's a lot of life that comes that occurs from a human experience in an analog sense there's all kinds of experiences going on and those in power are able to control the framing of which experiences get accounted for how do you go back and rewrite this history or maybe perhaps maybe that's the wrong verb but how do you go back and make it feel like you are accounting for human experience as it occurred? Or is that even the wrong um, aspiration to think of a, as like, maybe maybe it's a bit much to say, I don't know exactly what occurred, so therefore I'm doing X, Y, Z to more account for maybe smoothing over something. I don't know. I'm just sort of mm. curious about that process. No, it's definitely a really important aspect for us in that narrative and storytelling, and particularly the storytelling piece of those whose stories you know haven't been told and intentionally haven't been told, right, and have been left out of the education system. And so, there's a number of ways that we go about this. So, we we have uh, one of the communities that we've really actively partnered in over the last five years is in Montgomery, Alabama, and we have incredible local partners that we work with in the community there. And um, pre-COVID, we were bringing groups in person there. And during COVID, we've worked with our local partners to really create this virtual tour uh, that really provides this opportunity to draw this through line and seeing that this is that Montgomery was the place where the many of the slaves that would come to the US would come to the, the lynching memorial and museum that is there that's sort of commemorating this, this history of, of lynching. And we actually engage in as part of the, the that storytelling work, um, people whose you know, parents were um, were killed by lynching, and so it's a it's actually a more recent lived experience. And the the power of being able to be in community, coming back to this concept around community with people that have gone through these experiences and are then able to share how that relates to now for you know, those who are entrepreneurs and are trying to raise capital. And when we look at the you know, $69 trillion that are invested annually and you know, less than 2% that are invested into women and people of color run businesses and funds, being able to 
see how that imprinting from that that history and the and to, to today is how we have ended up in a situation where this is the the reality that we're engaging with. And a big part of our thesis and work is that without understanding how we got here, our ability to be able to co-create and design solutions for moving forward is going to be that much more limited, which is why that grounding in history becomes uh, so important. So so you go into these uh, communities and you're hearing these stories and you're accounting for the stories. So one of the uh, potential pitfalls is, is that um, stories are amazingly uh, seductive to some extent. Um, and where I'm going with this is that how do you determine, especially if somebody's got a good story and is a good storyteller, they both uh, have the, you know, they, and I mean, they really know how to work it. How do you discern how representative that story of, is of a larger pattern versus the uniqueness of that story to that particular person? Um, because there's often a vested interest, depending on where people are and sort of what they're trying to achieve in amplifying certain stories that may not necessarily be purely representative. Um, so curious on how you navigate the discernment and making sure that some story doesn't become just as much as you're trying to capture and make sure people aren't underrepresented, there's some, to some extent, it can be overrepresented as well. No, I think it's a great question. And, and one that you know, we think one of our advisors uses the um, concept around like facts plus context equals truth. And so if the stories are that context piece that also the importance of facts, and we talked earlier about data and just the importance of data and science in this, um, as being a really important aspect. So we're not overweighting on any individual story, but also grounding that in what is the broader context that, that people are, are operating within and what is the broader data set that uh, we're building from. And I, we use just one example, which is we partner with a group called Illumin Capital, which is an impact fund of funds investing into private equity and VC funds in the impact space with a, a focus around bias reduction. And in collaboration with them, have a research partnership with with Stanford that's all focused around implicit bias and investing. And in this research study, there were 180 asset allocators that were engaged, and they were provided a one pager on two different funds. And everything about those two funds stayed the same, but the one thing that changed was the race of the of the fund managers. And uh, one was black, and one was white. And what was found in this study is that there was um, a disproportionate amount of overlooking and underestimating of the black fund managers. And in fact, the higher the performance of the black fund managers, the more bias that was shown in that investment decision making process. And I use that just as both it's a very powerful study and I think has really helped to inform you know, how a lot of people have been thinking about you know, what is what how can we change the diligence processes and how do we think about you know, mechanisms for unlocking more capital into women and, and people of color. But when I think about the power of having research papers like that, that was published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and what have you, with then also the stories of people you know, on the ground who are working on and engaging on these issues on a daily basis. Um, like we need both. Like we, and we can't overweight on 
you know, one versus the other, but there's certainly, you know, an incredibly important aspect of, of having that research to underpin so much of this work that, that we're engaging in. Why do you think that occurs in terms of the bias? I mean, I just, I mean, there's probably lots of ways into that, but I mean, um, what is the source of that bias, one? And then I also want to, as much as you're trying to reduce it, um, I also want to understand a little bit maybe that part of you that just feels sympathetic for the natural inclination toward bias as well. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to that latter point, I mean, there's there are elements around bias, which is just, to your point, the sort of natural categorization of our minds, right? It, the, Daniel Kahneman talks a lot about this in book Thinking Fast and Slow, of just the the power of that we are creating these categories as a way of simplifying the way that we interact with the world. And so to your first part of like, what, like, why does this happen? I mean, in so many ways, it's the way that our brains have developed. And it's a big part of the, the reason that we focus so much on, on implicit bias is that so often these are not explicit. There are many examples of explicit bias that you know, exist within the world, but the, the more implicit nature of, of bias is, is something where we all have these biases and, and, uh, and we live in society where you know, the media perpetuates a lot of these the biases, the way that you know, financial institutions that have been, have been set up for, you know, for, for generations that has perpetuated you know, so much of what we associate with a, a successful entrepreneur um, you know, has a certain educational background and demographics and and so as part of that categorization process, the ability to be elevating and having key examples of you know, others that come from different demographics that have been very successful that can then counterbalance uh, where you know, so often people orient in terms of what's considered to be normal and expected. And, and, uh, and I think to your earlier point around power dynamics, that, you know, that also just does interplay so much with how you know so many of these conclusions are reached is that we look at those that are within power and are deemed to have this sort of respect from society and uh, and defer to 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 that power. So the interplay between power and bias is also something that you know we think a lot about and are really intentional about in the curation of the the experiences that we have. How do you um, when? Uh, gosh, I'm just, I have a bunch of things sort of running through my um, mind right now in terms of um, this implicit bias, uh, implicit biasness. How do you, so right now when I hear you, uh, I'm hearing somebody who has this sort of belief that, you know, the world is somewhat of a figurative fluid place at a semiotic realm where you can move the pieces around um, and we can kind of create uh, the representation that we want based on human experiences. Now, most of the world thinks pretty literally, though. So most 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 humans on Earth are either trained or socialized, incentivized to literalize the the semiotic realm that supports them. Uh, you know, their family, their community, whether right, wrong, or indifferent. What I'm interested in is how do you how do you sort of soften that without feeling threatening to somebody who just like 
why are you here, Jenna? It's like, I don't, I don't even understand you. Like, I don't see this. Or if I do, why would I have it? Or, or I don't see this. Or if I do, it's like, is it really worth doing this? And so maybe, maybe start with that first one and then maybe phase into the second part of the question. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it because it is something that, um, what I appreciate about this space that we have right now and our conversation today and our previous conversations is the ability to sink into that, I'd say probably more you know, fluid spiritual place. And, and I do think that that is you know, a big part of our true reality. Um, but recognizing, of course, that there are many people that that is how they relate to the world, but there's many people who don't. And the, the importance of being able to have the the arguments and the entry points that meet people where they are on their journey around this work. And so uh, she find that a lot of the time, the, the case that we make and coming back to that research study from Stanford is actually the, the business case for the people are leaving money on the table because of their biases. So if we actually see that people, which you see from this, in the research is that people are overlooking fund managers that are actually performing better because of their biases. Like that is just the 101 on um, you know, effective decision-making within businesses that you, know, you want to be maximizing financial returns and you have a fiduciary responsibility to be able to do so. And so much of the time, the arguments that making and engaging around is coming at it from that perspective of you know, here are the even the financial reasons for doing so. And you know, part of my background was building a coalition of foundations that were divesting from fossil fuels and investing in new economy solutions. And we had this similar discussion during that time where you know, there was an emotional and uh, ethical reason to appeal to people for, you know, we should care about the environment and our interconnectedness with the environment. And, and that's great. And I totally believe that. And then there's also a financial case for um, that it doesn't make sense to continue to invest in the fossil fuel industry um, you know, f- from a financial perspective. So, so I think that that ability to, w- with whatever it is that we're engaging about and talking about, the importance of meeting people where, where they are on their journey and how their orientation is to the world um, is, a, is a really important you know, aspect of this conversation. Where does the, so we talked about this race as, as a potential through line. Where does the, um, I'm really interested in this intersection between money and race, right? I mean, we're in the impact investing space. So we are forming capital around opportunities. And yet that capital itself is not anonymous and neutral by any means, right? So we right. we just talked about people having implicit biases. And yet there's something about uh, the monetary system that most people just assume is this neutral, anonymous, or just this completely innocent thing. And if you can really sort of unpack that a little bit on what you're finding when you go back, create the historical circumstance so people have the race through line, but then how does it start intersecting with the actual money? And why is that relevant to understand that relationship and that ongoing sort of uh, systems uh, are working together? 100%. I mean, I think part of it is even recognizing in the buildup of Wall Street, like the role that you know that racism has played in um, the the sort of literally that Wall Street was built off the black of slaves. Like I think is a really important one uh, for us to to your point of money not being neutral, and then you know particularly as it relates to 
thinking about our investments, the idea that, you know, our investments you know, are not just neutral, right? And the power of thinking about, you know, across asset classes, what are ways of being intentional about what our values are and how that then translates into the investments that we're making. And so whether it is through tools and, you know, Rachel Robichotti has joined for you know, previous interviews that you've had, but whether it is through public equity ETFs like hers with justice or I uh, mentioned Illumin Capital on the private equity side. I also do some direct investing with a group called One Planet VC into early stage businesses. And we have a focus on ensuring that you know, at least 60% of the portfolio is into women and people of color run businesses. You know, when we think about these opportunities or people in the real estate space doing like, like some of the work you're, you're doing, that, it, that this isn't just something where one can think about, oh, with this portion of my portfolio, I can kind of tick the box and then it could be undermined by the you know, all the fossil fuels that I'm investing in through the, the public equities exposure. Um, and so I think that's what's been really powerful, you know, certainly over the last five to 10 years, is to see more and more institutions and individuals who are really looking at what does it mean to you know, have impact in every part of one's portfolio. And, and that's where I do think this deep work around reflecting on what what are our values and what is the legacy that we're seeking to have in the world and and then how does that translate to the the money piece becomes really important rather than I think so often it can be the other way around where it's like oh what is the what are my financial goals rather than what are these broader um goals just as a human being that I have in this world you find that people are thinking in terms of legacy um or as acting on that or is that just sort of a um... I'd refer to a sort of titular motive. It sounds good and it sounds like a really great thing to think about. But I mean, do you really think that that I mean people are are driven by that? I think it's beginning to shift more. I, I've certainly found like over the course of the past couple of years, I think like COVID was definitely just a wake up call to many people. And of course, that combined with um the murder of George Floyd and and others that I think it, it raised the level of um, engagement and intensity around some of these issues in a way that I think sometimes previously for people, some of these elements were nice to have and that became elements where it was hard to justify not having at least some engagement um, you know, in some of these topics and, and a desire to, to think more about some of these questions around legacy and, and what have you. How does how does uh, you know this just coming up? Uh, how does our ability to respond to the stuff that you that, that you're articulating now really impact us in a bodily sense? Uh, like uh, you know, I mean, this essentially this flesh that uh, we're temporarily hauling around here on Earth for a short period of time, you know, it it comes in uh, you know it comes into a materialization and it eventually dematerializes. And one of the fascinations that I have is, is that while we're here on Earth, these very activities that we're engaging in do at a vibrational level impact the kind of experience that our body is having in the world as well. And what's often interesting to me about those folks that are um, involved in race um, is, is that um, they often have especially if they've had a very visceral encounter with understanding race. Uh, 
they have a sense of the body that is quite unparalleled to those that haven't had those experiences. Um, I know that, um, what's the author's, his last name's Coates. Uh, he wrote the, he wrote this long Can letter I to Coates, his, yeah. Yeah. So when mm-hmm. I read that book, I was like, this is one of the most powerful books on embodiment, and yet it would never be listed under embodiment. The, uh, the man really 100%. writes from his body. And to me, that's what just kept me flipping the page. Obviously, mm. I mean, there's a lot of sentimental, like, jeez, I can't even, you know, almost every page I can't relate. But what I could, re- what I could feel is the pain of his body. Mm. And mm. I think of that often because I think one of the um, features of trying to live a, you know, a spirited existence is having some relationship with your body that understand it as more than just the sheer matter, but as a vibrational field that is basically taking in just as much like, uh, you know, it's taking in life and how it's impacting the quality of, you know, our ride while here. So, uh, yeah, can you touch on that a little bit on on what how it's impacted you personally and then what you've seen out there as a result as well? For sure. And we actually um before we co-founded Impact Experience, we went on this somatic my co-founder and I, Darren Dodson, we went um on a somatic healing course uh, that Eileen Fisher had hosted and it was really powerful. She actually kicked off the program by saying I've spent my whole life helping women to feel beautiful from the outside. I want to spend the rest of my life helping women to feel beautiful from the, from the inside. And uh, it was mainly, it was like 13 psychologists who had spent much of their training focused on somatic healing. So it was, it was just an honor to be in community with this group. But we, as a result of that, have integrated a lot of somatic processes into our programming for exactly the reasons that you're talking about that, and uh, that firstly, that it is that these uh, these topics are embodied topics. That if we're not engaging our body as as part of this work, that there's so much healing and broader work that we are not able to do unless we are able to activate that part of ourselves. And actually, one of our partners right now is just going through the um, body keeps score. Uh, there's like a training program around that and. Uh, you know, I think that particularly when I think about when we bring groups to Montgomery or engaging in, in Montgomery, that it's one can't help but have a, a visceral experience in responding to you know, everything that's, that's going on. And so um, recognizing and acknowledging you know, that part of, of, the, of the processing, um, I think, becomes a, a really important aspect of, the, of coming to a place of wholeness, both kind of individually and, and collectively. I remember seeing an interview uh, with, uh, it's, it's Eileen Fisher, right? Yeah. The for, uh, like co-founder of Gap. And is that, is, are we talking? Yeah, about- I think she has her um, own sort of Eileen Fisher brand. Yeah. But she's in the fashion space. Okay. Um, so I, what, um, I'm curious about what kind of uh, somatic tools were actually, uh, or that stuck out to you that that you still carry around, uh, that the, the, you know that resonate with your existence and your body as as it travels through time and space here. So one exercise that we did during the um, program that we now do as part of our our experiences, and I find just a very a very powerful source of 
both strength and connection is uh, it's an exercise that each person individually reflects on somebody that loves them unconditionally. And so that's, it's, it, that's first just an individual process. And then it's an eye gazing exercise. So we walk around in a circle and make eye contact with other people in the group, bringing the presence of that person that loves each of us individually to those interactions. And it's totally in silence and it takes you know, a few minutes. And, but I, and it's, so it's so simple and yet so powerful in terms of, to this point, this sort of through line of our conversation in many ways around building community that it's uh, it can be challenging for some people, but it's it's a I think an opportunity to build community in a way that it brings the presence of those that aren't physically there, but as a way of then connecting to those who are physically there that we may not have you know any relationship with previously to to an exercise like that. And I think that some of the insights from an exercise like that that have broader ramifications is that the idea that there are ways that we can connect to those that may not be physically present. And so I think a lot about my both my mother and my grandmother passed away in the last few years and was incredibly close with, with both of them. And that even though their you know, physical reality is no longer um, here, the ability to still be connected to them and for them to still be a source of inspiration and connection and but actually a facilitation of the connecting with people who you know, may still be in this physical reality and that that there's a tie-in between that sort of spiritual connection to this physical connection what happens on these journeys how does one sign up to go to montgomery <clears throat> and how do you get people to go you know, how are these, how are like, yeah, actually take us into the field of um, <clears throat> like, let's say I wanted to go or I want to take my family or is that even possible? So a big part of our work are curated experiences, either for organizations or for networks. So we'll do work within an organization and it could be if it's working with a funder, it might be them internally, but also some of their investees or grantees or board members will also do work you know, with boards. Uh, or So we've worked, done work, for example, with the Open Society Foundations with their investments and grant making team or with Mission Investors Exchange, where it was a number of different people from different foundations engaging. And um, the arc of an experience uh, is that we always start, just given that the trust building is such an important part of the work, we always start the experiences with a trust building um, exercises. And that really is a, also a through line throughout. And I'd say even before we actually get to Montgomery, there's also a fair bit of pre-work. So we have, I mentioned pre-calls and pre-service with everybody. We also have background reading and curriculum that we curate for each group. So we we really look at equity across a number of different systems. So of course the investment piece being a really important aspect and um, the environment, education, health equity. And so we have curated content um, based upon the, the themes and priorities of the partners that we're working with. And then the actual experience is typically over the course of two to two and a half days, typically between 25 and, and 30 people. And uh, we start with this trust building. We engage what we call provocateurs. So they are people that have expertise in the areas that we're engaging around to help to spark the conversation and, and dialogue. I 
I mentioned earlier about the power of music and the art. So we always engage uh, musicians and artists as part of the experience as a way of contextualizing a lot of what we're talking about, um, but being able to access that through um, another method and and medium. And uh, and then we have the breakout groups with the opportunities for people to dive more deeply into their own personal journeys as it relates to looking at bias and, and privilege. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, around the, this action orientation, we have opportunities for people to reflect on what they're inspired to commit to as next steps, which we then follow up and support on the implementation of that over time and have follow up calls and surveys and engagements with the participants after the experience um, as well. So that's what the overall kind of arc of, a, of an experience tends to look like. And is there a particular type of demographic that you see that's particularly interested in this? I mean, who is it an easy sell for? Who is it kind of a hard sell for? Definitely think we're, we're seeing a lot of interest from investors, foundations, corporations. So, uh, and particularly we're seeing you know, many organizations that have made commitments, you know, over these last couple of years around racial equity and then like, okay, so how do we actually go about implementing this? And what does this look like? And how do we both hold ourselves accountable, but also have roadmaps for the making that actionable? Uh, so that's definitely a lot of people who are in that in that category. Um, I think sometimes that like, people who might be more resistant to it are uh, people that just haven't seen maybe how it affects their day-to-day reality or work or um uh, so uh, you know some examples would be you know, we often have these questions from people who maybe are coming from more of a global context and they're like oh well racism is just an issue in america like i'm in x country it's not really an issue here and um and that's a really important aspect for us in those engagements and actually a big part of mentioned like the pre-work and curriculum is actually grounding this in a global context because and I think we're seeing this um, you know, with so many different parts of the world, but the importance of the recognition that this isn't just a, a US issue. But I think that's where sometimes there can be some various people who might be part of global companies who are like, okay, well, how does this really play out in some of these other contexts? And so that's uh, that more of that navigation at the beginning. Now, I have no idea if this is correct, what I'm going to share with you. And Maybe there's no way of knowing exactly, but you're in the field. And so I have a few friends from um, Scandinavian countries that live in the States. And um, they're they're actually amazed and feel like the States is like years ahead in terms of um, integrating um, all the people into. I mean, as much as like we're just here and we see the um, the absence of they're coming from a context where they would say, oh, in our country, you would never even see this because we don't even uh, allow or we just shut these topics out way before they even get a chance to become an issue. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but it's just like we just push it out beyond our boundaries, essentially. And like I said, there may be no way of knowing exactly what's what. But given your experience and when you're looking at it from a historical context, I mean, where are we in this discussion? Yeah, no, it's a great, great one. And to your point about sort of grounding this in history is that um, 
you know, I think about the Martin Luther King and of the you know the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice is that, and it's very much also a Baha'i belief that despite the fact that we have these huge forces of disintegration that exist within the world, we also have these forces of integration. And how are we doubling down in those areas and opportunities for that integration rather than becoming overwhelmed by the the disintegration? Right? And um, so I do think, you know, one of the things that has been you know, really encouraging, and of course, there are all the elements that we've been talking about you know, today around accountability and follow-up, is the how galvanized people have been you know over the particularly over these past couple of years in the US and that I do think we're in a really powerful moment in time in terms of continuing to catalyze on that in engagement and the the awareness where it beca- it is it becomes less possible to be able to say like oh this is just an issue somewhere else and isn't something that is you know in my backyard right and the the ability to be able to um have those reminders of that and i think that's where you know one of the elements around you know social media for all of the negative aspects of it it sort of forces us to confront with realities and sometimes distorted realities but it also on the positive side forces us to confront um you know what what's what's taking place within the world in a way that i think you know 100 years ago um, the ability for people to connect to those realities was obviously that much more difficult. So um, for all of the crazy things that are happening in, in the world right now, um, I think certainly one of the areas that is a source of you know, hope for me is, you know, is just seeing some of the ways in which people have been engaged and, and galvanized to, to want to do things differently. Seems to me like this would be awfully tough work, um, in so much so that unless one um, has a has the ability of or practice to really embrace sort of the micro moments of like, uh, yeah, we did it. Um, otherwise, I could see this becoming very fatiguing really fast um, because you have the entire weight of history um, sort of pushing down sort of constantly and there's definitely not a structural tailwind by any means for this particular topic what are you doing uh on a day-to-day week-to-week um you, you name the time period to actually just say hey look i'm looking at this from a this is a long game this game will continue it's been it was here before me uh it will be here after me uh, but how does Jenna sort of on a day-to-day sort of wake up and sort of keep herself uh, feeling vibrant, given these, how I view what the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, I think it's a really important one and both you know, individually with our team, with our partners, our communities. You know, I, and I think this is where a big part of the strength that has certainly come from a sort of spiritual faith practice. And so you know, very much on a daily basis, uh, you know, some that is sort of more, um, practices around reflecting on gratitude and and but really to your point about celebrating wins of also just taking that time to actually acknowledge um the the power of some of that reverberating influence just so much of this work can sometimes be less clear like it might be sometimes years before the full fruition of something comes to reality and so um sort of taking that time to reconnect with folk to 
to realize that there's both the sort of tactical piece that we're always you know engaged around and pushing towards in terms of dollars moved right and like that's a very concrete like there was previously less capital that was being invested into these communities or these organizations that have been underrepresented and now there's more and like that's great and we can get a lot of um encouragement from from that and then i think there's also this more um behavior change piece of how are we asking questions differently in our diligence processes right how are we bringing that awareness and engagement uh, around some of these you know, historical contexts to the way that we're interacting with people and um, and so i think reminding myself of the small and the large and the micro and the macro in in this work and not becoming overwhelmed by the the macro but also in you know encouraged by the the micro uh becomes a really really important aspect Jenna, is there something that's come up during our conversation that um, either you would like to uh, reinforce or something that um, feels unspoken as a part of um, what's emerged here? I appreciate it. I, I, you know, it's been a really wonderful conversation and I've just really appreciated the opportunity to connect. And, and I think that uh, there, there's a line in the Baha'i writings that it talks about like human beings in reality are spiritual beings and only when we live in the life of the spirit are we truly happy. And I think that you know there's so often, you know, so much of the, our world and particularly the you know Western world around this focus on like pleasure and happiness and that sort of the short fixes. I think that there's sort of something about and whatever that may mean, like it, I think like spirituality could like sometimes the, the language can be um turn off to people because uh, people associate it with the sort of dogma of organized religion but i think the ability to be able to step on a path that opens us up to what is that that, that spaciousness for for joy and for a true meaning that can uh, sometimes come from the seeping into something deeper so that's something that i think has been playing in my mind as we've been talking and just it's certainly really encouraging for me to be able to have these conversations and to be sort of reconfirmed in that in that reality so so thank you so much for the the opportunity for sure i mean i feel so fortunate to have your voice as part of this um ongoing conversation with a lot of good impact souls and where could people find more about you uh some more information about your story and the kind of work you're doing and doing in the world yeah, so certainly our website, um, so impact-experience.com and uh, you know, feel free to email me. It's just Jenna at impact-experience.com and LinkedIn is obviously always good. And so, yeah, really excited to continue the conversation and to, to connect with, um, with other folk around this work. So thank you. Thanks so much, Jenna. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.